I want to read Article 36 of the Belgic Confession from its original, in its original form from uh, Philip Schaff's Creeds of Christendom instead of from our Three Forms of Unity book. And the reason for that is that almost all Reformed churches today have modified this article somewhat, and I think we want to see the article or hear the article in its original form. Article 36, we believe that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, hath appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies, to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained, and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose he hath invested the magistracy with the sword, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. And their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also that they protect the sacred ministry, and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, that the kingdom of Antichrist may be thus destroyed, and the kingdom of Christ promoted. They must, therefore, countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. Moreover, it is the bounden duty of everyone of what state, quality, or condition soever he may be to subject himself to the magistrates, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them, and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God to supplicate for them in their prayers that God may rule and guide them in all their ways and that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Wherefore, we detest the error of the Anabaptists and other seditious people and in general all those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would subvert justice, introduce a community of goods, and confound that decency and good order which God hath established among men. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the article deals with uh, three subjects. The first is, of course, the duties of the civil magistrates. The second is our duties to the civil magistrates. And the third is errors with regard to the civil magistrates. And it's in that first paragraph that we come across the problematic section of this article, the section which uh, Reformed churches, most if not all Reformed churches today, have modified in some way. Some have added a footnote to the article, leaving it in its original form, but uh, kind of in the footnote uh, explaining away certain phrases of the article. Others have dropped a particular, what seems to be the most objectionable phrase from the article, that is, thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, and others, like the United Reformed Churches in North America, have removed one paragraph of the article completely, 
and have replaced it with additional material. I've given you a handout um, that shows the um, three paragraphs that the United Reformed Churches have adopted in place of the one paragraph that mentions um, the removal and destruction of idolatry and false worship. The three paragraphs that they have substituted are paragraphs 3, 4, and 5, and you can see the original paragraph in italics at the end of the article, so you can see the changes that they've made by comparison right there on that single page. But before we get to that uh, question uh, that these changes to the article seek to address, there are certain duties of the magistrates about which all Christians would be uh, agreed, I think, and we can talk about those first. The uh, article says that God has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained, or because of the depravity of mankind. And all of us, I think, would agree that the uh, purpose of the magistrates is indeed, one of the chief purposes of the magistrates is indeed the restraint of evil. If it were not for the civil magistrates, in fact, uh, we would very quickly descend into chaos and anarchy. You can see that in countries where uh, the government is weak or corrupt, and I think you can see it increasingly in our country as governments more and more abandon their true responsibilities and assume to themselves responsibilities which do not belong to them, especially our federal government, but also state and local governments to a degree, and city governments as well. Um, this uh, obligation of the magistrates to restrain the dissoluteness of men or to punish evildoers, of course, is derived directly from Romans chapter 13, the first few verses of that chapter, and that's a very important chapter in the Bible for the establishment of a biblical understanding of uh, the civil magistracy. We're going to read the verses uh, 1 to 4. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And we'll come back to that, of course, in the second part of this discussion. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And verse 5 is, well, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So that 
addresses both the responsibility of magistrates to punish the evil and praise what is good, and the responsibility of citizens towards these magistrates to be subject for the sake of conscience as well as for the sake of wrath. So that's one, and we might even say that's the primary responsibility of civil government. We could mention, I think, today um, additional responsibilities, especially at the national level. There, are, there is a responsibility for national defense. There's a responsibility for international relations. There are certain uh, projects, I think national projects, like infrastructure projects that are properly done by uh, civil authorities. But the government today, our government today, and most governments in the West, I think, have assumed to them far, to themselves far too much power, far too much authority, and have entered into areas where they have no business being. Um, I think perhaps education is one of these, though it might be within the purview of government to establish certain minimal standards for education, the government is far too much involved in education in our country. The uh, assistance of the poor is probably another area in which the government is far too deeply involved. The redistribution of wealth by means of progressive taxes, these are areas where the government has assumed authority which it should properly not take to itself. And we should beware of that, I think, because it is through this accumulation of power, the gradual accumulation of power often, that governments become more and more anti-Christian and assume more and more power over the lives of their citizens and more and more ability, therefore, to interfere in the um, proper godly life of Christians. The Confession mentions only this one responsibility uh, in the first place. It doesn't mention these other ones that we have been talking about. Where uh, Reformed churches, especially in the 20th century and in this century, have found reason to disagree with the Confession is, of course, in that part of the Confession where it describes the state's responsibility towards the church. that they protect the sacred ministry and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, that the kingdom of Antichrist may be thus destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. They must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. And of course, this has been rejected, especially in light of the principle in, uh, found in our Constitution of freedom of religion. This has uh, become a very important principle in our society and has in fact also become a very important principle for Christians today in their defense of their Christian practice in an increasingly hostile social environment. More and more People oppose Christian morality and oppose Christians in their practice of Christian and biblical morality. And Christians have 
usually defended themselves by appeal to this idea of the freedom of religion. And we can therefore be very thankful that we have that in our Constitution to help us in these matters. But the question is not answered uh, by that principle. We have to answer this question about the responsibility of civil government uh, by reference to the scriptures. And we have to acknowledge that our fathers in Article 36 of the Confession were attempting, maybe they were wrong, but they were attempting a biblical description of the responsibilities of civil magistrates towards the church. So we have to look at that matter. Notice what the Confession says in that original paragraph. It speaks of um, protecting the sacred ministry, of removing and preventing all idolatry and false worship, of destroying the kingdom of Antichrist and promoting the kingdom of Christ, of countenancing the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, so that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone. Now, as you go through those different responsibilities, I think at least in some cases you can understand them in a biblical way. For example, if you take that first one, protecting the sacred ministry, um, if you if you mean by that simply that the civil government has a responsibility to protect, protect ministers of the gospel and Christians and uh, property owned by churches and that sort of thing from criminal activity, that's certainly correct. The government has this responsibility towards churches to protect their property from criminal activity to protect uh, ministers of the gospel and other Christian people from uh, uh, criminal activity and and so on. It's not a difficult thing to understand, but this is a responsibility which the government has to all individuals and to all the institutions of society. It has the same responsibility with respect to businesses, for example, or with respect to schools, or with respect to charitable organizations of other sorts. It always has this responsibility to protect the institutions, the separate institutions, not non-governmental institution, institutions in the country which it rules from the criminal activity. So I don't think there's a real problem with that kind of statement. The second one is the one that seems to be particularly objectionable. Thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship. This is the one which seems to contradict the idea of freedom of religion, that the government has a responsibility to remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship. And notice that that's a pretty um, broad statement. If under idolatry you include all the worship of false gods, that means that the government would then have the responsibility to remove and to uh, prevent all, this, all these false religions, Islam and Judaism 
and um, uh, Mormonism and, and many, many other uh, false religions, Buddhism and Hinduism and so on, who would have that responsibility to prevent those uh, kinds of religions from existing in its society. But the confession actually goes even farther than that. It says it has the responsibility to prevent also false worship. And under false worship, you could include um, the worship, for example, of the Roman Catholic Church. And that uh, demonstrates, then, that this is, uh, in the light of, uh, of the days in which the Confession was written, a very bold statement. Here's Debray, Guido Debray, the author of the Confession, uh, really writing the Confession for the Roman Catholic authorities who were persecuting the Reformed churches in the lowlands, and saying to them, you have a responsibility to protect the ministry which we are doing and to suppress the idolatry and false worship which you are supporting. That's the, the particular uh, clause of the article that's problematic for us today. Destroying the kingdom of Antichrist and promoting the kingdom of Christ. Um, that too would probably be considered objectionable. Though not perhaps as objectionable as the prior phrase. And then countenancing the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere. That God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word doesn't say doing the preaching of the gospel, it says countenancing it. And I think we can say, yes, that would be a responsibility of the magistrates. They must not hinder the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the true gospel of Christ, must not stand in the way of it or seek to prevent it. It's their obligation to make sure that society, society is is peaceful and, and well-ordered so that this preaching of the gospel may go forward and God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands. Now in connection with this, I think uh, I would like to read also from two commentaries on the Belgic Confession. One is the commentary of Clarence Stam uh, on this article. Just a very brief passage from the article, from the, his um, commentary. He says, these words, and that he's talking particularly about that clause about removing and preventing idolatry and false worship, these words, indeed, can give rise to misunderstanding. Nevertheless, the basic notion contained in these words has value. If the government does not, in matters of public life, emphasized, withstand the inevitable rise of idolatry and false worship, it contributes to the spiritual and moral decline of the nation. So that's what Stam says. And then a longer um, quote from Jan van Bruggen's commentary on the 
confession, the church says amen, is the title of this commentary. And he says this, the protection of the church and its ministry does not mean that the government must organize the church and perform this ministry, but that it ought to protect it, safeguarding it from hindrances and providing it with room. This is also meant by the words that the kingdom of Christ may come and the word of the gospel may be preached everywhere. Furthermore, it does not say here that the government must destroy worshippers of idols, but that all idolatry and false worship may be removed and prevented, meaning that in its domain, the domain of public life, the practices of idolatry and false religion ought to be prevented and forbidden. Here the government is not to bind people's consciences. That is not its duty. Rather, it may not permit public practice of idolatry and false worship, the reason being that it is not to open the door to the kingdom of Antichrist. Instead, it is to destroy this kingdom in its domain. Understood in this way the deleted words, and that's that uh, uh, most objectionable clause, as generally thought today anyway, do have a valid and scriptural meaning. Those in the office of government, of whom this article is speaking, must, like all people, let themselves be directed by both tables of the law of the Lord in carrying out their tasks. So, um, a couple of additional things here than on this matter. Um, We cannot say, I think, that the government has no responsibility at all with regard to the first table of the law. Because there can be no true obedience to the second table of the law without obedience to the first table of the law. And when the scriptures do speak about the responsibilities of magistrates, they talk about the responsibility of magistrates to be subject to God. Not to any God, but to the one true God. Thus, for example, in Daniel 2, verse 47, uh, The scriptures indicate that it was um, Nebuchadnezzar's responsibility to submit himself to the God of Israel. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And in Acts chapter 12, verses 21 to 23, we have that little story about Herod. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. And, of course, when Nebuchadnezzar was made into a beast, or made like a beast, in Daniel chapter 4, that led to him acknowledging 
the majesty and supremacy of God also over himself. He says this at the end of chapter 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? In fact, really you could say that the whole prophecy of Daniel is about the relationship of kings, earthly kings, to God and God's supremacy over them and the uh, need for earthly kings to acknowledge the authority of God. Government officials cannot claim that they are free in their function as government officials from the authority of God or from obedience to God. They must be in submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they, they therefore also have to rule righteously according to God's word. Proverbs 16, verses 10 and 12. Divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. And in verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. And in uh, Proverbs 25, verse 5, which we read a moment ago, another verse of this sort, take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. We can't make a distinction then between crimes in the civil uh, government, in the area of civil society, and transgressions of the law of God, if the laws of the society are just and righteous laws. So kings must rule according to God's law. And they do have certain responsibilities with respect to the first table of the law. I think, in fact, we would acknowledge that in certain areas anyway, the government has to uh, interfere uh, perhaps in the life of the church. Let's just say, for example, that you get uh, a Christian sect of some sort that uh, refuses to obey certain laws of the government on its property and in its um, own community and, and among its own people. And in certain cases, the government may say, uh, yes, because of our principle of freedom of religion, we will allow that. But in other cases, it may be that they have to say, no, we can't allow that. Think, for example, of the polygamy allowed by the Mormons in the uh, 19th century. Do we, uh, is the government to take a, a hands-off with regard to stance with regard to that kind of, of practice? Or take the practice of euthanasia, which uh, at least one doctor in this country was practicing for a time. Is the government to allow him to do that if he defends himself on the basis of religious uh, principle and 
his right to practice his religion freely, and, and so on. You could think of many other instances as well. We would acknowledge, I think, that the government must, in certain cases, interfere, even in the work of certain uh, sects and organizations which would claim religious rights or would even claim to be Christian. Government has certain responsibilities towards the church. It has certain responsibilities also towards the first table of the law. In fact, uh, if you uh, look at the United Reformed Church uh, version of this article, and that first paragraph, and the third paragraph, being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. And then again, in uh, the third of those three paragraphs, they should do it in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Certainly indicate some responsibility with regard to the first table of the law and some right to interfere in certain matters that belong mostly in the church. So that's one thing that we can say. I think another thing we can say and that we're seeing today is that in the long run, this principle of freedom of religion cannot work. It worked for 150 or 200 years in this country, I think, because there was a, a consensus in the country about, if not about the Christian religion, at least about Christian morality. But that uh, consensus has broken down, especially in the last 20 or 30 years. And the breaking down of that consensus has uh, exposed the fact that this is really not possible. And the reason it's not possible is that this principle of freedom of religion really assumes that the government is going to be neutral towards religion. But the government is made up of people. And people are not neutral towards religion. They're not neutral towards Christianity. They're not neutral towards their own religion. They're not neutral towards Christian morality. They're not neutral towards their own morality, whatever that morality may be. And they, they want to practice their morality. They want to be allowed to murder babies in the womb. That's their morality. They want to be allowed to practice all kinds of sexual perversion. They want to be allowed to rebel against civil authorities. They want to be allowed to destroy through strikes the property of business owners. They want to be allowed to do many things that are contrary to the law of God. And they want to enshrine these things often in law. And not only do they want to enshrine them in law very often, but they want to impose their morality on others or force others at least not to raise any objections to their morality or to practice their own morality in such a way as to interfere with their wickedness. 
And so they make laws and they uh, do provoking things to Christians in order to get them into the courts, to destroy their businesses, to enforce upon them the tolerance of all kinds of wickedness, and so on. Freedom of religion is a principle which is proving impossible to maintain. We can be thankful for it as long as we have had it, but I think we are seeing that it is going to break down in our country as well. And as it breaks down, an anti-Christian government and wicked people within government will not want to protect the sacred ministry. They will want to suppress it. They will not want to allow free course to the preaching of the gospel. They will want to put an end to it. They will not want to allow Christians to worship and practice their uh, Christian living in the way that they understand from the scriptures. They will want them to live as they themselves are living. Increasingly, in fact, governments work not to protect Christianity and Christians, but to suppress Christianity and Christians. We must be prepared for persecution. We look then at what Psalm 2 says about these civil authorities. Here's another psalm that addresses the whole question of the relationship of the civil authorities to God and also to God's people. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And at the end of that psalm, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So kings and authorities are either in obedience to Christ or they are in rebellion against Christ. There's no halfway mark where they can be neutral towards Christ. It is impossible to be neutral to the King of Kings. I do not pretend now, brothers and sisters, that I can answer all the questions that might arise in this context. I'm far from being able to do that. There are many difficult and painful questions that will arise in the future also in this regard. But we do have to recognize that civil government is not free from the authority of God and the authority of God's word. 
So let's look in the second place at the duties we have towards civil government as described in one paragraph of this article. Those uh, uh, duties are as follows. To be subject, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them, to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God, to supplicate for them in prayer. Five things. And I think the first one, first of those five things, is really kind of a summary of the other four. That is to be subject. We must be subject. And what this being subject means people of God, is recognizing these authorities as appointed by God and ruling on behalf of God. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 13, that the authorities that exist are ordained of God. And he's talking about, remember, the Roman authorities who were far from being Christian authorities. They are ordained of God, and it is our responsibility to be subject to to them, to acknowledge that they are placed there by God himself and that we must be subject to them. The second uh, responsibility that the confession talks about here is uh, to uh, pay tribute, to pay taxes. Christians may not excuse themselves from the payment of taxes on the basis that taxes, the taxes may be used for evil purposes. The Apostle mentions this specifically in Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Therefore, render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear honor to whom honor. And Christ himself said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, when he was asked a question about paying taxes. So that's the second responsibility, and and we should not feel free then to avoid the payment of taxes uh, because we think that uh, this amount is small enough that we can get away with it or that this uh, payment that we receive is something the government doesn't know about and need not know about. We have a responsibility to be honest in this matter as well. The third responsibility is to show due honor and respect to them. Paul mentions that too in uh, Romans 13, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, but Peter also talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, uh, verse 13 and following, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, 
honor the king. And again, Peter is saying this to the church in a time of persecution. Honor the king. Not speak disrespectfully and not disobey with a defiant attitude, but honor and respect. Fourthly, obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God. I think we should emphasize the word obedience there. Obedience is first. Before we get to the exception, you must obey. That's what Peter says. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself to their ordinances. And then, uh, think about the exception. When you have done all you can and may do before the face of God to submit yourselves to their ordinances, then you may start to consider where You must disobey. And it is a must. Or you must disobey because we have to obey God rather than men. The Israelite midwives, Exodus chapter 1, disobeyed Pharaoh because Pharaoh commanded them to murder the male children of the Israelite mothers. Daniel's three friends refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image and were thrown into the fiery furnace because of their refusal. They had to obey and worship God rather than Nebuchadnezzar's image. The apostles refused to obey the Jewish authorities when they were commanded to cease preaching in the name of Jesus. And they defended themselves on the basis we must obey God rather than men. There are times, and perhaps those times are becoming more frequent, when we must disobey. And I think it's a question of must. There have been some Christians recently who have taken the position that the government has overreached itself, for example, in the, in the matter of uh, mandating wearing masks during the COVID epidemic and have refused to obey the government in this. Well, wearing a mask is not contrary to the word of God. Maybe the government has overreached itself in that matter. Are we free to disobey in such a thing? I'm not so sure that that is right. Now, there's other areas probably in which the government overreaches itself to such an extent that we say, no, no, I can't do that. Maybe it's not a, a, it doesn't require me a transgression of the law of God, but nevertheless, they are overreaching way too much their authority. And we cannot submit to that. Say, for example, that the government seizes unjustly church property and says you may worship here anymore. I think the Christian rightly fights back against that. And if he can, he... uh, continues to use the property in spite of what the government says. So there is such a thing as government overreach, which may be disobeyed. But we have to be careful that we do not carry that too far. We are called on to obey as much as is possible in good conscience. 
And the final responsibility then is to pray for them. To pray that God may rule and guide them in all their ways. We pray that they will submit to God. That they will rule righteously. That they will punish wickedness. And praise those who do well. That they will forsake wicked ways. That they will give free course to the ministry of the gospel as it's practiced by those under their authority, and so on. And that's so that the church may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Finally, the confession rejects certain errors with regard to civil government, rejects the errors first of the Anabaptists, who if they did not completely reject civil government, nevertheless refused to obey the the civil government in certain lawful matters like the taking of oaths, and were sometimes seditious of civil government. In the second place, it rejects those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would subvert justice. I think we might say uh, in this category fall the anarchists, for example. In fact, one of the translations mis- mentions anarchists here. Um, people who, uh, who think it's, uh, civil government is simply uh, wrong in itself and that it's our obligation to oppose civil government and to overthrow civil government if it's at all possible. That's a failure to submit to the authority of God himself. And then the confession mentions also the introduction of community of goods. There are Christians who have tried to introduce community of goods as a rule of life, for Christians at least. The confession rejects that notion. And this is certainly also a rejection of the idea of communism, which promoted the community of goods, but used it as a guise for the government to take all power to itself. And all those also who confound that decency and good order which God has established among men, decency and good order as defined by the commandments of God. And there are many, many who do that confounding of decency and good order today in our society. This question and this whole question of civil government is becoming uh, increasingly important for us, I think, today, people of God. And our calling with regard to civil government is becoming increasingly difficult. It's hard to honor and respect those who display such wickedness and folly as we see in our some of our governing authorities. And there are more and more things about which we are going to have to say, I must obey God rather than men. So we need to pray. We need to pray for wisdom and discernment. We need to pray for the preservation of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ in this world. 
And we need to pray also. We should not forget that. We need to pray also for judgment on the enemies of God. Let's look at Psalm 58. First of all, Psalm 58 is a psalm addressed to those who are in authority. At least in part. It begins, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. And then in verse 6, this prayer, Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Young lion stands there for those who have power and authority. Break their teeth. We must pray that God will do so. And in Psalm 82, another psalm about civil magistrates. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. And at the end of that psalm, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. We should pray for our magistrates that they will rule righteously, that they will um, be converted to the way of Christ, the truth, that they will uh, fulfill their obligations as they have them under God. But we should also pray against wicked magistrates who rebel against God and ask God to break their teeth and to destroy them and to establish His kingdom in opposition to theirs. May God bless us with his word.